Working on nuclear issues can be a lonely, isolating experience. As anyone who has tried to discuss these problems with non-activist family and friends well knows, so when you learn that there is a place you can go that provides community and networking with others who care as passionately about nuclear issues as you do, and you hear the head of this group saying, "The big message of the Uranium Film Festival is you are not alone." And then you learn specifically exactly how alone you no longer are. That's when you know for certain that you are no longer by yourself in your concerns about that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a special on nukes and films, specifically the International Uranium Film Festival, which will be coming up starting later this month in New Mexico and Arizona. We'll talk with Norbert Suchenek, director of the film festival, about what's behind this truly globe-trotting event, both in terms of the films they show and the many countries in which it shows up. We'll also have interviews with people responsible for directing two of the films being featured, Rebecca Camissa, director of the award-winning Atomic Homefront film on the devastating impact of World War II nuclear weapons waste in North St. Louis, and Taylor Dunn and Eric Stewart, who together are creating Off Country, about nuclear legacy to downwinders of the Trinity site in New Mexico, the White Sands Missile Range, and Rocky Flats in Colorado. Today is Tuesday, November 6, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. And it really is a different perspective because I will be working the election polls on the actual November 6th, so there will be no time to record a news report, and this will be an all-interview program. The first is with Norbert Suchenek. He is executive director of the International Uranium Film Festival, which will be held in the American Southwest beginning the end of this month. Norbert is based in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and we spoke on Thursday, November 1st, 2018. Norbert Suchedek, it is great to have you back with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks. It's great to be back to Nuclear Hot Seat. First of all, For those people who may not be familiar with the International Uranium Film Festival, tell us what it is and what you see your mission as. It's just uh, the only film festival about everything nuclear and radioactive. We started the festival, in fact, the idea was 2010. We had the first festival 2011 in Rio de Janeiro. 
and we are screening just films about everything nuclear from Hiroshima to Fukushima, everything that you cannot see on big television. And what was the response that you got back then that has allowed you to continue to keep going? Well, when we started to ask for support for the festival, everybody said, what? A festival about nuclear, about uranium? No, no, this is nothing. Oh, forget it. But in fact, when we uh, created the first website to announce we are going to have the festival soon, in the first year we received 70 films about everything nuclear from around the world, from Iraq to Germany and the United States. And this is continuing. Every year we receive dozens of films. I think the nuclear question is a very big question and it tackles everybody. When you get these submissions from all over the world, what is it that you're looking for in making the decision of the films you're going to show? We are looking for, of course, for good films, but we are looking for issues that maybe nobody knows, that maybe nobody still is not aware of. For example, uh, this year we received three very good films about the Manhattan Project, films about this important project which created the nuclear bomb, which nobody knew before. I didn't know that St. Louis was the place of the Manhattan Project. My goodness, I thought the Manhattan Project was only in Los Alamos, but in fact it was spread all over the United States of America. It was a big surprise and, and, and we received this year three films about it and in fact we had to select all the three films to show it in, in Berlin because every three films showed the question of the Manhattan Project all over the United States from a different angle. I'm glad that you raised the fact that the festival is also in Berlin because quite frankly it shows up all over the world. It truly is international and it seems to happen more than once a year. What is this structure that you have and why is it all over the place? It's not a structure. We are still looking for a structure. It just happened. We started in Rio and from the first year we received invitations from, I would say, from Greenland to Jordan, from around the world. And already in the first year we went to Portugal, in the second year to Germany. We already have been in twice in United States. We already have been in, in, in fact in Jordan, even in Palestine, in, in Ramallah we have been. <laughs> because really everybody is affected because of the nuclear industry. Either because of atomic bombs or of depleted uranium weapon, because of the use of depleted uranium weapons, or because of just somebody wants to make a nuclear dump in your neighborhood. And so everybody who is interested in anything about nuclear, at the end, uh, will find our website and will ask us to come. When you go to different parts of the world, do you find that that influences the films or the types of films that you show? Yes, the type of films that we show and it's the way we present the films. It's the way that we want to present the films. I am a 
the journalist, an investigative journalist since the 80s. And I know all the things about nuclear power for a long time. But mostly you see films about nuclear power or uranium risks in smaller places and not in, in the big cinemas. The internet, the YouTube is full of stuff, for thousands of films about the issue. But it's very different to watch a film in a small screen of your computer or in, in the backyard of a little church or somewhere else. It's very different to watch a film in a big cinema because very often if you see the same thing on a big screen, it opens your eyes. And we want to give value to the work of the filmmakers because very often the filmmakers struggle very hard to make a film about something that is secret and something that is dangerous and something that maybe even kill you. Because, you know, radioactivity is invisible and it's not very comfortable for the people. One of the joys that I have experienced when I have been at the festival, which I have been now both in Quebec City in 2015 and Los Angeles in 2016, is that I'm not sitting alone with my computer and watching this at home. I'm not in isolation with whatever the information is. I'm in a community with others who care about these issues enough to be there. And also we're responding and we are responding in kind with each other. And there's great power to that in not being alone with whatever our thoughts and experiences are. Is this what you see every time you do the festival? In fact, the big message of the Uranium Film Festival is you are not alone. The filmmaker who is doing the film is not alone. Now, during the film festival, a filmmaker who made a film about depleted uranium mining, about depleted uranium, is now together with a filmmaker who made a film about uranium mining and together with a filmmaker who made a film about a nuclear waste dump in the neighborhood. Now they can exchange each other. And also the victims, the victims of uranium mining are now together with the victims of a nuclear power plant. Well, the big message of the Uranium Film Festival is you are not alone. And it's amazing as you have experienced, if you watch the films together with a big community, it's a new experience. It's also a fabulous place for networking, as you've said, not just between filmmakers, but between members of the audience who have different aspects of interest in what's being shown on the screen. And also members of the public who just kind of find their way in there and go, oh my gosh, look at what I'm seeing. How can I get involved? Because I've seen that happen as well, where people completely new to the issue suddenly become informed and become radicalized about it and then want to help us take action. Of course, of course. That's the big issue of the Rainer Film Festival because it, I experienced as an environmental journalist that the nuclear issue was always discussed inside of the anti-nuclear community or inside of the pro-nuclear community. And we created the festival to exchange everything nuclear to everybody. It's open for everybody. And for that, we try to conquer the big screen, the big news, to attract everybody. 
You've been doing the festival now since 2010, which remarkably was before Fukushima. Yeah. So you were already established when Fukushima happened. In the years since then, have any of the films presented at the festival impacted public policy, politicians, laws, cleanups? There are a few films that I'm thinking of in particular, but I'd rather have this coming from you. Yeah, one of the ideas to create a festival was we have to do something to not forget Chernobyl. So we made it. And then in the middle of the process, then happened Fukushima. So now we have to have the festival to not forget Fukushima too. I'm not really sure which film really could today change something in politics. I know that our festival already changed the life of some filmmakers. In what ways? For example, it was 2013, I guess, or 2014, we screened a short film from India, High Power. It was the first film of an ex-nuclear engineer from India. He worked for more than 12 years in a nuclear power plant or nuclear power industry. And then he said, I have to make a film about it because it's too crazy what is going on in India. So he made a short film about the first nuclear power plant in India called High Power. And this short film was forbidden to be screened in India. So we screened it in Rio de Janeiro. We invited him to come to Rio. And he came together with the victims of the nuclear power plant in India. We had to give him a prize of the film festival. So what happened after the news was spread from Rio to the world? Well, his film was by the government of India allowed to be screened in India. And after the film festival, the filmmaker received invitations from about around the world. He traveled from Los Angeles to, to Tokyo with his film. There's also a film that you will be showing that has had remarkable even if not officially sanctioned or officially acknowledged impact. And that is Atomic Homefront, Rebecca Kamis's film about North St. Louis and yeah. the Manhattan Project waste that has so poisoned the people in the area there who didn't even know the waste was there. They didn't know that they had just bought homes on a radioactive creek, for example. Are you aware of what the impact has been since that film has been not only shown in movie theaters, but also it was shown on HBO. I must say I'm not really aware about it totally because we have 100 films to show every festival. Of course, for us, it's a very good film, very well done film. We screened it in Berlin and the audience said, wow, that's a film we have to show in, in every schools all over. It's wow. I've never seen such a good film about an issue which I didn't know. We are going to give Atomic Homefront, it's not really official, but we are going to give Atomic Homefront a special award in Window Rock when we screen the film next December 1st. Let's talk about the program that you've put together for the Southwest, for Window Rock, and from there it's going to several other cities in both New Mexico and Arizona. But starting at Window Rock, tell us about some of the films that are going to be screened. 
Okay, I already said we are going to screen Atomic Homefront, which we have to screen because it's really a well done film. Are there any films in particular you'd like to draw our attention to that are going to be shown during the festival at Window Rock? We will show this year two films about Greenland because a, a, a few years ago, the government of Greenland, the indigenous government of Greenland, decided to allow uranium mining. When Greenland was part of Denmark, there was a law by, by Denmark to ban uranium mining on Greenland. But when Greenland became independent, the government decided, well, we may allow uranium mining. And now there are big companies from China, Australia, trying to do uranium mining in Greenland. And there's a huge discussion between the population. I guess Greenland has only about 70,000 people. And they now have to decide, shall we really allow uranium mining in our country, which is covered with ice mostly? There's a small part of Greenland where you can have cattle ranging and even crops. And exactly in that part, they want to make uranium mine. Of course, if there's some place that is beautiful and pristine and important to people, that's exactly where they're going to put something exactly. of nuclear nature. They're not going to make uranium mining in the middle of the 2,000 kilometer ice shield. No, they're going to have the uranium mine in the middle of the most productive part of Greenland. So we will show two films about it. And we, if we are very lucky, Lisa Autogena, she is from Denmark, living in England. She is an artist and she made a beautiful film about Greenland and she will come to Window Rock to present her film. And we should all discuss the question of Greenland. What other filmmakers are planning to be there or do you expect to be there? We will have uh, Justin Clifton from Flagstaff. He made uh, several films about the Grand Canyon. And you know, the Grand Canyon question, I guess uh, President Obama signed a decree to forbid uranium mining for the next 20 years. And then there was the new government, Trump, who said, well, maybe we should kill this law. <laughs> maybe we should allow uranium mining. So he made two very good films about the issue of the Grand Canyon and we will show his films. And I think at the moment, the Grand Canyon still is not yet safe. Actually, the story that we covered on last week's show is the fact that while it had been decided that the canyon mine claim was going to be grandfathered in and that mining would be allowed at some future time, that court ruling was just overturned so that the objection to it can go ahead legally and we still have a chance of blocking it. That just happened in the last seven days. It's still a chance to block it. But in fact, every four years, a new government can change its policy. So we cannot stop with the film festival. After the screenings at Window Rock, you have many other locations in the Southwest where you will be bringing at least some of the films, if not all of them. What are those other places that you're going to be? We are going first to Flagstaff on December 2nd. And after Flagstaff, we are going to Albuquerque. It will be the second time. We have been in Albuquerque in the year 2013. 
already. And then from Albuquerque, we go to Grant and to Santa Fe. Every festival will be interesting in the Southwest USA. But Santa Fe will be a meeting of friends. We will have in Santa Fe, Miguel Silvera. Now he was born in, in the community in, in Santa Teresa, where we are living. But he's living in New York for a long time. And he made a film about depleted uranium weapons, a very good short film. So he will show up in Santa Fe, and he knows many people in Santa Fe. For example, he knows also Adam Jonas Horowitz, and he's a filmmaker in Santa Fe who made the film about the Marshall Islands and the nuclear tests there. Was that Nuclear Savage? Yes, the film Nuclear Savage. We screened it several times, and Nuclear Savage received our famous award, but this time, we will not screen Nuclear Savage. We will screen a new film from Adam Horowitz, and this will be a big surprise. Is that going to be at Window Rock as well, or just in Santa Fe? Just in Santa Fe. It will be a world premiere in Santa Fe. I am sorry I will be missing that, but I look forward to catching up with it shortly after that. What do you hope will be the impact of the festival in the American Southwest and beyond as a result of you being here for such a long period of time. I believe you're going to be here for about two weeks. Yes. After Santa Fe, we are going to Tucson. And if uh, somebody between Tucson and New Orleans wants to screen some films from the festival, we are still open to add places because the ticket from Rio de Janeiro to uh, Albuquerque and return was much more expensive than the flight ticket from Rio de Janeiro to uh, Albuquerque and return from New Orleans. So we said, okay, we will drive from Albuquerque to Tucson and to New Orleans back. So on the way from Tucson to New Orleans, we still have time to screen some films, maybe in Houston or maybe in New Orleans. In the coming 12 months, where is the International Uranium Film Festival going to be putting down your boots and showing more films? One effect of the Uranium Film Festival in Berlin was we invited a filmmaker from England. In fact, he is a Scottish filmmaker. <laughs> because of Brexit, he wants to make the difference. And he made a film about an uranium mine in Portugal. In fact, it's one of the oldest uranium mines in the world. And it's connected with the Manhattan Project because one of the first uranium that was used to be transformed into a bomb in St. Louis came from Portugal and not from the Congo. And this man from England, in fact, he was born in the uranium mine in Portugal because his grandfather he was not the miner, he was one of the engineers from Scotland making the uranium mining in Portugal. The, the name of the mine is Ujurissa. And because of that, we brought both together one old uranium miner from Portugal. We sent them to Berlin and we brought him together with the English filmmaker in Berlin. And it was, it was a kind of explosion. <laughs> a good kind of explosion. When we talk nuclear, we've got to be careful about yeah. that. It was not a nuke explosion by the kind. So the effect was the uranium miner said, we, we have the ex-uranium miner, we have to bring the festival to Portugal. And the first thing he did was 
when he came back to the Portugal to go to public TV, made he made a huge interview in the Portugal television, and now it's for sure we are going to Portugal in 2019. That brings up how is the festival covered in the media, in television, in any of the entertainment industry-centric publications or programs that are out there? Do you get notice or has it been difficult? It's always very difficult, but it depends on the places. We have good coverage in Brazil. I must say, really, we have very good coverage in Brazil. That's where you're based. That's where you're based, yeah. And we had very good coverage when we have been, we have been twice in India. The festival was in more than 10 cities in India. And we have such good coverage in India. It's amazing. And it's, in India, it's a country that has the nuclear bomb and nuclear power plants, which is a strong country in favor of nuclear power. But still, we have a good coverage and we could screen all of our films there with a huge, huge audience. In Germany, we struggle very hard. Unfortunately, in Germany, I do not understand. We get support in Germany from the government of Germany, from the Ministry of Environment. Only because of them, we can do the festival in Berlin. But the media are not doing anything for us. We are suffering because of the media in Germany. In Hollywood, we had a good media. You know, our festival was, was a blast, as you said. <laughs> we have more stars per square inch. It was really <laughs> wonderful. And we, and we had a good coverage. It was wonderful. We have to get you back here. Let me ask you something. It's coming up very quickly, but this March is going to be the 40th anniversary of the Three Mile Island nuclear accident. And I know at the beginning you said, we can't forget Chernobyl. We can't forget Fukushima. But it seems that people have forgotten Three Mile Island, which is something that I address myself to on a regular basis. What are the odds that we can very quickly slip you back in with some films to show during the 40th anniversary next March? We should not forget Three Mile Island, of course. And for that, we have to do something. We would be honored to return to the United States and to have a big event about do not forget Srimna Island. Jane Fonda, I would like to invite her. Why not? It would be a great place to have a screening of the China Syndrome, along with the newer information that is now available in that area. And I know that Heidi Hutner, who is a professor at Stony Brook University, has been working on both a book and a film called Accidents Happen. And she's done extensive filming already in the Three Mile Island area, some of which I've seen and which is devastatingly powerful. So let's see if we can cook up something to get you to Three Mile Island, because I think it would be an important way for people to start understanding exactly what has happened to them, because it's been so suppressed and so programmed out of them to even think that anything was wrong. That's, of course, what I address in my book, but that's another subject. That would be very important to have the festival there. And Heidi, it would be great to, to have her film as soon as possible and to show it on the big screen. And I noticed that, at least in one instance in this upcoming festival in Window Rock, you do have a film by Taylor Dunn, who I interviewed along with her producing partner, Eric Stewart, about their film Off Country. 
and you're going to be showing an excerpt so you don't need a full film in order to present something. Is that correct? If the filmmaker can give us an excerpt, we can present him. Because sometimes you just have 10 minutes, but you need to get some more support to continue. So we, we try to have always the production of uranium filmmaking or nuclear filmmaking. And for that, we show the excerpts of Taylor. I will be on the phone to Heidi this afternoon. Now, regarding the film festival in Window Rock and throughout the Southwest, if people want more information and they wish to buy tickets for it, where can they go and what do they need to do? The good news is you do not buy tickets because this year we rented all the locations and we have every film screen for free. So there are no tickets. No tickets. That, you don't that's know the amazing. If somebody wants to make certain that they have a seat at this free film festival because it may be for no money the equivalent of sold out, is there a way they can reserve seats or is it first come, first serve? Well, there's always the way just contact us by email. You can reserve your seat in, in the first line and just the email info at uraniumfilmfestival.org. Info uraniumfilmfestival.org. And if there are filmmakers out there or people who want to be filmmakers and have either a project they want to do or that they're working on or perhaps have finished and they want to bring it to your attention, what do they need to do? It's the same. The best way is just to send the email or go to our website, uraniumfilmfestival.org and you will find all the addresses to contact us. The picture you put out is such an extraordinary one. As I've been telling my listeners, it's exciting for me to again know that I will be covering the festival, that I will be there to network with as many people as I possibly can and bring their voices, their stories, the stories of their films and the issues that they care about to the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. Before we close, is there anything you want to add? I want to add that you did a great job in Quebec. You know, it was really wonderful what you did about our festival in 2015 in Quebec. And, you know, the film final picture that we screened there in Quebec and later in Hollywood, the film from Germany, it received lots of awards now in during the last years. It's made such a success. And it started, it, everything started with the Raynham Film Festival. Well, let's see how much more we can get started this year. Norbert Suchanek, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, and I can't wait to see you at the end of November at the Film Festival. And I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure from you, too. Norbert Suchanek is Executive Director of the International Uranium Film Festival, and he is absolutely serious about wanting to have the festival be a presence in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania for the 40th anniversary of Three Mile Island. If there is anyone with a connection to a school or a venue or anything at all that will help us achieve that, please send an email to him at info at uraniumfilmfestival.org or to me, 
at info at nuclear hot seat. I want to give you a sense of some of the films that will be included. So here is the first of two interviews that I will have with filmmakers. This one is with Rebecca Camissa. She is director of the award-winning Atomic Homefront, which has aired on HBO and is widely credited as being one of the factors that has helped turn around the federal response to the problems of highly radioactive World War II nuclear weapons waste illegally buried in the Westlake landfill in North St. Louis. Rebecca and I spoke in October of 2017 as the film was having its West Coast premiere in Pasadena, California. When did you and how did you first become aware of this story and what attracted you to it as a film? Well, I actually wasn't attracted to it as a film because I wasn't making a film about radiation, but I was making a film about journalism. But I spoke with a friend about stories that were going on in the United States that didn't have national coverage, that were very underreported stories. And he just mentioned St. Louis. He goes, oh, St. Louis, then definitely. And I went, St. Louis? What about St. Louis? What are you talking about? And this geologist friend of mine mentioned what was going on in the landfill between a fire and radioactive waste, and I just thought he was making it up. It seemed too incredulous to me. So I started researching it and looking into it, and then realized, oh, God, there's something here. And then I made the trip out with a fellow producer, Jim Friedberg, and we arrived in Bridgeton, and we went to this ball field, and there was the EPA in moon suits with pushing these carts, to, trying to, I guess, detect stuff or test the, uh, the ball field. So we thought, oh, there's something going on here. And then we decided to pursue the story and just kind of got drawn into it more and more. So this was not a story I intended to tell in the first place. How did you get started with it actually being something that you filmed? Did you get backing for it, or did you just show up places with cameras? Well, um, I'm New York-based, so in order to come to St. Louis and spend time to do the story, we needed to be funded, you know, bringing crew in, staying a while, accommodations, hotel flights. We needed a budget. So we started um, going to private investors and to foundations to get money to start. And that money helped get us through until we raised more money. So we raised a little bit of money, then moved to St. Louis, and then got more as we went along. What was it like for you moving through the story and into the personal world of the people who were dealing with this on a daily basis? Well, I wish it was a story, but it's really a many-headed hedra. There are all of these stories in different ways. There's not only just the landfill, the Bridgeton landfill story. There's the Coldwater Creek story. There's the whole history of Malincrod, the history of the Manhattan Project. Then there's the science. Then there's where is the fire? Who do you believe? What agencies are telling the truth? Is there a true regulation at the site? Then there's the personal stories. Then there's the public face to the story. Is it going to happen? Is what these people are fearing really, really possible scientifically? Or are they just kind of, you know, neurotic, uh, right? So we were there, we filmed and we observed, and over time, things revealed themselves. And I think the most important thing we came away with is that in the very beginning, everything that agencies or officials told us was true ended up not being true. And all of the fears of the community ended up really being the case. And we only really knew that once we went through this three-year process of filming and, and sticking around and seeing what happens. What was the time frame during which you were filming this? 
Um, we started in August of 2014. Um, the last shoot we had was November 2016, I believe. Yeah. And then a year of editing. I know it's been said, and I have documentary filmmakers who have told me, that if you're shooting a documentary, you don't really know what your story is until after you've got all the footage and start putting it together. How did you deal with these many hydra-headed stories and weave them together into a single film? What was the thread that allowed you to walk through it? There are certain scenes that we shot in the film that we knew were important. They were transitional. They were dramatic. They were filled with truth. They were filled with pathos. We knew that a lot of those scenes needed to be in the film. But I'd be a liar to say, oh, we just did this and this and this. No, the secret to great documentary filming is having a superior editor who can really step in and take control. And our editor was Madeline Gavin, and she is a magician. She's a genius. We had so much footage and so many stories and a lot of detail and secret documents and not so secret documents and science and here this woman took our footage yes she had a bit of a outline but she's the one who really cut this movie to make it move be dramatic be truthful understandable and really give it a narrative feel like a fiction film and keep it going I mean, if I said to you, you're going to watch 90 minutes of a film about nuclear waste, you'd probably be like, all right, I either need a cocktail or, you know what, I'll just watch it at home, you know, in my spare time. No one wants to show up to watch a film about nuclear. <laughs> like, I don't either. But our editor, Madeline Gavin, really created this dramatic, moving, unrelenting documentary. Yes, it, you shoot in the field and making those decisions story-wise, but it's also, at the end of the day, it's the editor that faces how to put this together, how to put that puzzle together and have it... It's almost... It's like code-cracking, in a way. The two main elements of this film are the outreach, and eventually HBO will be broadcasting the film. So the film will then enter everyone's living rooms who has the HBO subscription. And what we really hope is that People will see the film and start to go, the light bulb goes on. Oh, wait, this is familiar. My community's facing this. Wait, didn't we have a new, why are we sick? I'm really hoping people that are unaware of the situation but know something's wrong can all of a sudden start to get more curious, ask questions, and look at this film as a basis for how to maybe educate themselves and proceed if they end up having to fight to not be poisoned. So the outreach... And getting it out nationally is super important because what we've realized, I was hoping when we went around with this film across the country, it would be just poor St. Louis. Oh, St. Louis, you know, St. Louis is struggling with its problem. No, everywhere we go, every community or state has a toxic site or a radioactive site. And the question is, has it been cleaned up? Has it not? And I think San Onofre is a perfect example of how this situation St. Louis is in the now right now. San Onofre, there's a proposal to dump 1,800 tons of radioactive waste, high-level waste, 125 foot from the beach. What idiot thinks that's a good idea? So if anyone asks themselves, gee, I wonder in 10 years what would happen if something went wrong, well, guess what? All you have to do is look at this film and see what happened to St. Louis. This stuff was dumped for decades, 20, 30 years. You see the result of what happened to these people. So 
the residents of San Clemente, Oceanside, San Diego, and all the way up the line, Huntington Beach, they can look at that film and go, okay, if the stuff isn't, temp- isn't temporarily put there and it isn't moved and something gets compromised, this is what could happen to us. It's really a cautionary tale of what the future could be for the San Onofre area, the area's residents near the San Onofre site or where they're burying this stuff. So I'd like to say being out in California is a real nice visit, but when we got out here, we started realizing, wow, there are a lot of sites in California that are experiencing some of the same problems. Actually, there are three. There's the area around San Onofre. There's the Santa Susana Field Lab, which I'm hoping some of the people I invited from there will be able to make Mm -hmm. it here tonight. Mm -hmm. And the third one that nobody's talking about is when Porter Ranch had its major methane leak. What nobody mentioned is that radon gas was being released at the same time. Why not? I mean, that was a big story, and we were even tuning in in New York of what was happening with this gas leak. How did the radon thing not get reported? It was mentioned in a list of what was being released, but the focus was completely on methane. And I did a special on Nuclear Hot Seat where I interviewed people about what does it mean to have this much radon being released, and it was pretty alarming. And I sent the episode around. Mm -hmm. I even went to a meeting, and I spoke directly with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Mm -hmm. and they had their hands full with methane. They couldn't shift their focus to include the radioactive factor of it. Everybody was focusing on that as opposed to the radon. So So are you saying then that a lot of the residents in the Porter Ranch area didn't even know radon was being released? Or they did know and they just couldn't get any play of, you know, any reportage to happen about that issue? That wasn't the focus. It's like the focus was extremely narrow. And because radon is something that is quote-unquote remediated if it shows up in your basement, nobody understands the true long-term impact of it. Having informed Rebecca Camissa of the problems with radon and the nuclear aspect of the Porter Ranch accident in Southern California, one can only hope that will be a focus of some future film of hers. Rebecca represents the satisfaction of having created an important film and gotten it out into the world. But what does it mean to be much earlier in that process? To find out, we're revisiting an interview with Taylor Dunn and Eric Stewart, the filmmakers behind the work-in-progress Off Country, an excerpt of which will be shown at this year's International Uranium Film Festival. It's a documentary about the victims and activists around the Trinity site in New Mexico, Rocky Flats in Colorado, and the White Sands Missile Range also in New Mexico. I spoke with both filmmakers about this project on Monday, May 14, 2018. Taylor Dunn and Eric Stewart, Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hello. Really excited to be on the show. Thanks so much for having us. My pleasure. Let's start out with a bit about your backgrounds as filmmakers, and were you activists on nuclear issues before you started this film? Sure. Um, I was involved with marching to shut down Vermont Yankee when I was living in New Hampshire in 2009. Yeah, and before moving to Colorado, I lived in Oakland. And I was very active, not in the nuclear sort of issues and communities, though I was involved with, you know, Diablo Canyon, um, but mostly looking at environmental and social justice. As filmmakers, what is it that you focus on, and have you always worked together, or is this a rather recent collaboration between you? This is a recent collaboration. I 
historically have made films where I'm kind of a one woman show or one woman band. Um, and my films, this is a little, this is similar to some of my other work in that my work tends to look at landscape and identity and place and kind of dissect that intersection of those ideas. This is our first time collaborating and also my first time making a feature film. I mostly work as a multimedia artist and photographer and don't generally work in this format, you know, dealing with story and narrative. So this is a really kind of like new and exciting format and collaboration for me. How did you come together and how did you get started on Off Country? Eric and I met when we were graduate students at the University of Colorado in Boulder. We were both getting our MFAs in film and we met and started hanging out and I don't know, we became good friends. And I think we realized we both had act and we're just kind of taken aback by uh, nuclear issues and some things that were that were going on very close to CU Boulder. Um, we became interested in the site of Rocky Flats or the former site of the Rocky Flats factory. And we really like, cause mostly working in landscape, you know, radiation is invisible, contamination is invisible, history is invisible. And we would drive by Rocky Flats all the time. And, you know, it's a very beautiful place. And when we started kind of learning about that history and dissecting it, and not just the history, but the contemporary issues of gentrification and real estate development around that heavily contaminated area and the water and everything like that, we really became inspired by that coalescence of activism and landscape and environment. Um, and that was really kind of our introduction and it all spawned from Rocky Flats. It seems that you have quite a challenge in making, as you say, that which is invisible, visible, or at least accessible and understandable to an audience. How did you start out with the storytelling and what do you do to make this unseen menace that we are all facing, something that is tangible and can be understood through the medium of film. Well, nuclear history has always uh, really fetishized technology and is focused on technical innovation. The Manhattan Project encapsulating nuclear energy as being clean and really focusing on the technology of it. And we're focusing on people and we bring this invisible history and these, this invisible contamination to life, so to speak, through the bodies of people and reinserting people into this narrative, focusing on their stories and their communities and relying on their voice. So we never focus on technology. We try to avoid jargon and we really rely on the first person accounts of activists and community members whose lives have been impacted and sometimes destroyed by nuclear contamination, low level, high level, mid level, focusing on people. We are making a feature film Something that we're gonna, that we're doing with this project is we're taking all of the oral histories that we're collecting from survivors, from people who have been directly impacted um, by the nuclear industry, and we are making them all available online. So that you you won't hear only what we've cut together for the documentary. You'll be able to have access for the whole interview just to get the people's history out there and hopefully to put it into the historic canon. Wonderful and so important. Now for the film, you're focusing on three different areas, Rocky Flats, 
the White Sands Missile Range, and the Nevada Test Site, which was where the first atomic bomb ever, Trinity, was exploded. What attracted you to these other two sites, and what struck you most deeply about these locations? We had mentioned that we started with Rocky Flats because we had been living very close to there. We're really taking a national perspective, and we didn't want to think about Rocky Flats in a vacuum. You know, the nuclear industry is really a, a national thing, from mining in the Four Corners, to parts being assembled in Kansas, to, you know, Savannah River, to Amarillo, Texas, you know, the Pantex plant and the Panhandle, and all, Hanford in Washington, and just like, you know, Lawrence Livermore in California, just really being you know, shocked and awed at the, the sheer scale of how it all connected. And what we saw was the same story of communities becoming sick, becoming impacted, the local environment being affected, you know, across the nation, everywhere that we see the nuclear industry popping up. Yeah, and I think one thing that certainly attracted me to the story of the Trinity test is that it seems like um, if you read about it, it's, you know, this heroic moment celebrated in time, this first nuclear test that changed the world, you know, with Oppenheimer quoting the Bhagavad Gita and all of this. It's like it happened and then it was over and that there was no nothing after that. But I think with the Trinity test, it's just so incredible how that one test, how that day has impacted generations of people who live in the area. And I think for us, looking at the literature and kind of analyzing why some of these sites were chosen, specifically the Trinity site, it says no one lived there. And that's just so outrageous because it's a very historic area. You know, people had been living there since the 1600s. The Camino Real was going by there. so And the native tribes before that, the going back into prehistory. Of course, absolutely. So all of these um, different people that have been there forever, and it's a really sacred place for a lot of people. And this documentation that no one lived there, it's like, well, what do you mean by no one? And it makes me really upset, and I think Eric upset, and it was part of the driving force of this whole project. Staying with Trinity, I'm certainly aware of the way that the nuclear industry and the government manipulates our perception of these places by how they frame it. You've mentioned one in particular saying nobody lived there. What other propaganda or manipulation or soft focus on wasn't this a wonderful event did you spot at the site itself when you were able to get there? Well, they sell books like The Day the Sun Rose Twice, which is really this kind of canon, you know, just reiterating the technology, the innovation. They sell t-shirts and stickers. They also sell breakfast burritos, which I found really um, kind of like absurd. They grill there. And the atmosphere is kind of mixed between a real humility, but also kind of this spectacular kitsch. The first time we went there, someone was actually dressed up as Robert Oppenheimer and was walking around. It attracts Geiger counter enthusiasts, which is a really interesting subculture. So there's this real mix of like kitsch propaganda alongside this kind of like humility um, about, you know, really the, the site that's really kind of shocking to think about. And was there anything there that reinforced the horror and the negative magnitude of what happened? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, that's part of what makes this so impactful is what you're not seeing. 
And I think this is true of um, the, the Nuclear Museum in Albuquerque, the Bradbury Museum in Los Alamos. It's, you know, so focused on technology and explosion pornography. That's how I think of it. And then you'll turn a corner and like way back in the corner of a museum, they'll start to talk about some of the effects, you know, whether they're downwinders or the bombings on Japan, etc. But it's not part of the narrative. And certainly at the Trinity Test site, when, when it's open, there's nothing there that alludes to the effect that that bomb had on the world in a negative way. The Trinity Test site is only open twice a year to the public, and you have to be escorted out there with military personnel, like in a big caravan, and it's really, really far. I can't remember how many miles, but I feel like it's like 70 miles from the nearest town to the site when you drive in with the, with the caravan. It only happens twice a year. It's this big spectacle. People line up really, really early in the morning and then they drive out there. And there's this real tension between the Park Service, because the Park Service maintains that small area and they really want it to be a monument that people can visit year round, but that would be very impractical because it's an active proving ground where they're doing conventional weapons tests and flying training missions and stuff. And so the compromise they have is to make it open twice a year. But that tension that the Park Service is sort of in charge of kind of rebranding it as this museumified place. And it's that same rebranding that we see at places like Rocky Flats, where they call it a wildlife refuge. And they hand it over from the Department of Energy to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so the Rocky Flats Wildlife Refuge sounds totally different than the Rocky Flats Superfund site. And this just rebranding and forgetting and whitewashing of history is this mechanism they use to make people forget. Taylor Dunn and Eric Stewart of the documentary in progress, Off Country, an excerpt of which will be shown at the International Uranium Film Festival. Other films being shown represent a wide range of uranium mining and downwinder issues for Native people around the world, including the tribal Cree, Diné, often referred to as the Navajo people, the Acoma, Laguna, and Lakota tribal nations, the Marshall Islanders, Australian Aboriginal people, plus the stories of activists fighting back against uranium mining and radioactive contamination at the Grand Canyon, at Yucca Mountain in Nevada, around Fukushima, with the excellent film Nuclear Cattle that captures this story so movingly, at Mururoa Atoll in the South Pacific, and other countries as well, including Greenland, India, Japan, Switzerland, Denmark, and France. All this in an environment jammed with filmmakers, activists, film lovers, everyone who is excited to be there watching important cinema. It's the kind of event that can lead to important connections and changes being made beyond anything we can conceive of going into the event. So, okay, now you've heard all about the International Uranium Film Festival, and you know that it's going to be a terrific and truly international event, and that I will be going to Arizona to cover it. That's the good news. The challenge I face is that funds are still needed to cover all of the expenses of this trip. Now, I'm committed to going, even if I have to sleep on the ground somewhere, 
but I still need your help to sustain myself in the full upright position while I am in New Mexico so that I can get the stories you know that you will only find on Nuclear Hot Seat. That's why I'm asking for donations specifically to help me with this trip so I can bring all the excitement, information, and passion of the event directly to you. The way to help out is to go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. Donations of any size are appreciated, and you can earmark them to go specifically towards this trip. If you donate $100 or more, as a bonus and a great big thank you from me, I will send you a personally signed copy of my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. Dr. Helen Caldicott says of Yes, I Glow in the Dark, absolutely fascinating. This book must be read by all people who care about the future of the planet and their children. There are a lot of other accolades, too. So do what you can to help me get to Window Rock to cover the International Uranium Film Festival. NuclearHotSeat.com, Big Red Donate button. And, of course, for any help you can provide, you have my gratitude. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 6, 2018. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy to do. Just go to our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, and sign up for weekly email links to our latest show. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, Take a moment and send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We will really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that, as Margaret Mead said, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. There you go, your nuclear wake-up call for the week. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.